all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful to come together as your family and to study your word and to worship you. We know it blesses you far greater than it could ever bless us, but we are thankful to be able to do it. We're thankful for one another. We could have never brought this, (laughs) all of us together, how you have, Lord. You've truly done it, and we appreciate the treasure that each one of us is in our lives. And we're thankful, Lord, that when we study collectively as a body, It's different than when we study individually, Lord, as great as that is. So we ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning. We pray, Lord, that we'd be honorable, Lord, to you and that we would uh, bless your heart by us recognizing the true value of sitting at your feet and learning from you. Jesus, would you feed your sheep this morning as you so badly want to. Help our hearts to be open to anything you want to speak to us about. Help us to not forget what we look like in the mirror of your word, that we would recognize the distance between what we are and what you want us to be, and trust your spirit and your grace to close that gap. We commit this time to you for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Peter, the apostle by the spirit, is writing this amazing letter to Jewish believers who are being greatly persecuted and going through difficult times. And he's going to continue to communicate two major themes throughout this book and the next book in 2 Peter. And those two themes are eternity, and the second theme is practical holiness. He's been getting their focus on eternity. And he's been doing that by explaining to them where they're going, who they belong to, the significance of Jesus' great sacrifice for them and the implications of that great sacrifice, and then 
what he'll zero in a lot on today, as we'll see, who they really are. Who, who, what's their, you know, real identity? They've been hearing other people's assessment of who they are in the context of persecution. They're hearing from people over and over again that they're worthless, that they're mistaken, that they're deceived, that they're not worthy of this world, which actually is true in a good sense. They're not, not meaning it for bad, but meaning it for good, that they, they aren't worthy of this world. We're not worthy of this world. God's made us valuable, and we're far greater than what this world esteems us to be. And so over and over again, they're hearing this horrible assessment by people of them, and it wears on you. When you're hearing horrible things about yourself over and over again, it starts creeping in through your, into your mind and in your heart, and you can start believing some of those lies. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us here heard horrible things about ourselves from people growing up that were worthless or not good for anything or, or less than somebody else? Those messages make a very deep impact into our lives, especially in our formative years. My, uh, I have, I'm the youngest of seven. I have uh, three half-brothers and a half-sister, and I have two real sisters. And, and growing up, some of my brothers lived with us, and they were adults and had no business being there. Uh, and there were some times where they said some pretty horrible things about me to my face. Now, trust me, I, had, I, I wasn't making life easy on them. I mean, I was provoking them to a lot of wrath uh, in how I was. But none of it deserved what they said to me. One time my brother told me, you're good for nothing. You know, and you're not going to amount to anything. And the enemy magnified and, and, and amplified that lie in my heart far greater than I imagined he w- it would and, until I look back upon my childhood and my teen years when those things were being said to me and I realized those things had a great impact in my life. And so the em- enemy amplifies those things and he replays them. You know, he'll play, I mean, we don't really listen to tapes anymore, but you, you know what I'm talking about when hits rewind and then hits play, hits rewind, hits play, hits rewind, hits play. And those things just keeps coming and coming to us and we can start believing those things. So God knew what was happening in the lives of these believers and he inspired Peter by the Spirit to tell them who they really are. And that's something that God's working in our lives continuously as we grow in our walk with him. So much of becoming whole and becoming who he's called us to be uh, has a lot to do with believing who he says we are. And not just believing it with giving mental assent to it, but actually acting upon who he says we are. That's the difference. Well, the first step is believing who he says we are. The second step is actually acting like it. And no matter what our, <laughs> our feelings are telling us, no matter what people are saying about us, no matter what people's assessment of our lives are, no matter uh, you know, what our past insists that we are, God says we're something entirely different. And, and the time it takes for those things to creep into our hearts and to, to really affect who we, how we see ourselves, it's a long time sometimes. And he's just wanting us to accept who he says we are. And if we could fast, just take this quantum leap uh, in, in, in really living out who he says we are, despite what our feelings and our past and our failures want to say we are, if we could just take that quantum leap immediately, we would see exponential growth in our walk with him. Because it really doesn't matter who we think we are. Ultimately, it only matters what heaven thinks about us. 
and how he assesses our lives and who he says we are. God is greater than all of our failures, all our cumulative, you know, the aggregate of all of our failures and all of our shortcomings and all that, that, that people meant for evil in our lives. He's greater than all of that. That's why he tells us to continuously grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Growing in grace, what does that mean? It's growing in our understanding of how God sees us and how God deals with us. And we're going to be learning about the riches of his grace for all eternity. Even in our new bodies, we're going to be growing in the knowledge of his grace. It's liberating for us. It sets us free. It's the anchor for our souls. It places us on solid ground and, 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 and solid footing as, as the means by which he, we, we grow or the place from which we grow in our walk with him. So he's going to tell us as we look at these verses uh, who we are. And then after that, as we'll go into next time, he's going to get into a lot of practical holiness as we've you've been looking at because practical holiness holiness matters especially when we're going through trials we should be growing in holiness anyway because we're his child those of us that know him but especially when you look at it from a practical standpoint when you're in a trial so often the first thing that goes is our is our holiness and we sometimes feel justified well you know God understands what I'm going through that I can just kind of lower the the bar as if we have that option (laughs) we don't have that option he holds that standard where it is. And so often the protection mechanism or the, the protection plan that he has for us is interwoven with personal holiness. And the times when we need to be the most holy or growing in holy, holiness oftentimes is the time when we're going through difficulty and trials because that in and of itself is going to be a, an insulator or a protection against uh, hardship and, and, and difficulty. So he's, he's going to encourage them to do that. So he starts in verse 1. He says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all speaking. Notice there's three occurrences of the word all there. He's not saying 40%, 70%. And that's where we, we, we know we're hitting 90% maybe, and we're saying, well, that's good enough. It's God's, the, the, the standard is the standard. The bullseye remains the bullseye. It's 100% laying aside these things. He tells us to do it, which means he's not going to do it for us. He'll provide the power once we yield our hearts to him and ask him to, to give us or bear that fruit through our lives. But nevertheless, we're, we're called to initiate that. And so he says, therefore, in light of all that I've just said about being uh, a child of mine and, and growing and so forth, you need to lay aside all those things. What is malice? Malice is when you wish evil on someone. That should never be found by the Lord in the heart of any child of God. Other people can't see it. People in the church can't see that our hearts are overflowing with malicious intent and thoughts, but God sees it because malice is a heart thing. You can't, you can't show malice externally. That's the motivation for something that you do that's sinful. That's not in and of itself what it is. So no one can see that. And he says, lay it all aside and lay aside deceit. We shouldn't, we shouldn't fool people. We shouldn't say things that are technically accurate, but really it's meant to mislead or redirect someone in another direction, making him come to another conclusion other than what the reality is. So you should, that, that shouldn't be found. Or hypocrisy, that's being an actor. That's acting like you're something that you're not. You know, you think of Ananias and Sapphira, where they acted like they gave all of the proceeds from their property that they sold. They were never told to give it all, but they acted like they gave it all. 
And that was very early in the, in the, the history of the church. And God dealt with that very severely, and he struck them both dead. That's how much God hates hypocrisy. He referred to the Pharisees as hypocrites because outwardly they looked great, but inwardly they, they were something entirely different. He doesn't want any hypocrisy. We have to have an environment, though, that's gracious so that people can be free to ex- express their failures and their shortcomings. Because if not, then we create a, an environment where hypocrisy is very easy to express. So you can't have an environment where people are not being hypocritical and have a, 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 an environment where it's not gracious. Because they don't go, you have to have both. You have to have a gracious environment and you have to have an environment that people feel comfortable with being themselves. And so um, we, we need to do that. Again, also envy. You know, it's been said that envy is not just jealousy where you want something someone else has, but you're wanting them to not have it. It's pretty bad. That's all of us can, can be engaged in that to be envious. Is there something that you don't have that someone else has and, and you're not wanting them to have it either because you can't have it? Those things need to be put aside. And then he says, an all evil speaking. That includes profanity. That includes slander. That includes gossip. doesn't matter if it's true. If we're not part of the solution, we shouldn't be sharing that with someone else. Or if they're not part of the solution, we shouldn't be sharing that. It doesn't build them up. And, and so it doesn't, sometimes the justification is, well, it's true. Or we somehow think that we can gossip with our wives because, you know, we're, we're so, I don't know, there's a different set of rules somehow for my spouse. I, don't, I, I can gossip all I want with my spouse and spare, you know, share all kinds of details about other people, but I'm not supposed to do that with other people outside my immediate family. That's, no, that's not in Scripture anywhere. So, so God says, here's the standard, and even if you're in a trial, even if you're in a, dif- a difficult situation, the standard remains the standard. And he says, don't do it. Because when you're being mistreated, don't you want to have malice in your heart? When you're being mistreated, you want to be deceitful. You want to be hypocritical. You want to be envious. You want to speak evil against someone that's persecuting you, that's mistreating you. It shouldn't be found in the heart of or in the life of a child of God. Then he continues talking about their growth. Notice in verse 2, he says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may, gr- may grow thereby. And this is interesting. Again, the context is persecution. God's still concerned about our growth when we're engaged in trials or persecution. doesn't stop ever wanting us to grow in our walk with him. Now, this is not talking about the same thing that the writer of the book of Hebrews talked about when he was criticizing that church or those believers because they couldn't handle meat yet. He was saying you should be teachers by now, but you, you, you can only take milk. The, 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 to miss the point of this verse is to focus on the word milk. The, the, that is not the main focus. The main word that you should be looking at and I should be looking at is the word desire. Because the picture is, an, is, an, is a baby. You ever seen a baby when it's feeding time? You have a little baby in your hands and you, know, you're, you have the bottle and you're feeding that. I mean, that's like massive suction power. I mean, that, they could plug vacuums into that kind of power. I mean, you could get a lot done. And, and you, miss, you miss the mouth. Have you ever done that? Where you miss and it goes on their cheek or whatever and you know, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to find that. I mean, they are so starving. They're so hungry. Their body, every, every motivation that they could possibly have in their body is all directed towards getting that milk. That's, that's what Peter by the Spirit is saying. He's not focusing on milk. He's focusing on the desire there that babies have for milk. And he's saying we should have that same 
uh, insatiable hunger, supernatural hunger for the word. And he says the result of the end of verse 2, that you may grow thereby. I've said this before, and it's, it's true. I want to keep it before us, and myself included. We don't get to define how much we grow. God hasn't left that up, up to us to decide how much we're going to grow because he has a different idea entirely of what growth looks like for our lives. So as we take up our cross daily and follow him, we get to grow at the rate or in the way that he has in mind for us. And in our culture, we think it's all up to us. We get to do what we want. And we get to grow as fast or as slow as we want. That's not biblical. But he, his expectation is that we would grow. But you can't grow very much if you're not feeding upon his word. What would happen if we only ate on Sundays? It'd be a lot thinner. But how would we be nourished if we only ate on Sundays? Now, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We want to grow spiritually, but some of us at times can be starving ourselves spiritually. and We wonder why we're not growing. Well, what if you only fed yourself once a week? Would you get mad at, at, at God or anyone else for the, why you're not growing? You would, someone would say, hey, how about the rest of the week? Have, you know, have some Pop-Tarts on Tuesday or something. Have, have some pasta or something, you know. Don't just eat on Sunday and expect to grow and be nourished. And that's how it could be for us. Some of us, and I say this with love without any condemnation, but some of us will sit here and still not feed on God's word. We will we'll be thinking about a million other things. And I don't mean like just fleetingly for a minute, but I mean tuned out completely the whole entire time. And, and so it's not a religious exercise. We're not just, he doesn't, he's not saying, okay, I want you in one location and now you want you in another location on Sunday. And then as long as you're there, that's going to count for something. He says, I want you to worship me. I want you to commune with me and I want to feed you. But it, it requires our hearts to be open and receptive to what he wants for us. So he says, I, my, my, my will for you is that you grow. But don't try to grow outside of how I've laid it out for you to grow. I've laid it out for you to grow by feeding upon my word every day. And, you know, sometimes people refer to it as being a self-feeder. That's kind of weird vernacular there. But we have to be responsible for feeding ourselves spiritually and growing in the word and growing in our knowledge and growing in our obedience to his word. Then he says, if indeed, verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And the grammar there is really getting to the idea of since indeed you have tasted that. He's not saying there's a chance that you haven't. If we know Christ, we've tasted that he is gracious. So he says, since you indeed have tasted that the Lord is gracious, then why wouldn't you study his word? Why wouldn't you feed upon his word? Why wouldn't you let him produce growth in your life? If he's been gracious and given you things that you haven't deserved up to this point, why wouldn't you expect him to give you amazing things in his word that you don't deserve? And so he says that should be our motivation. God is gracious. Sometimes we struggle with grace. We don't understand it. And we're all growing in it, like I mentioned. But when you don't understand grace, when you fail, you, you get further and further away from God. When you understand God's grace, when you fail, you go to him. And, and he already knows how, how bad we are. He already knows our sin. When we sin, it doesn't take him by surprise. He knew that at the cross. He knew that when he saved you. He knew that from eternity past. Nothing surprises him. He doesn't say, oh my gosh, look what so-and-so did. I can't believe it. He can't learn anything. And so he is gracious and he just pours out his grace upon our lives. And that should create a hunger to know him more. Because he's our father. He's your father. 
And so when you fail, you're, you don't, you don't, well, it would break your heart if you had a child. Every time they failed, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. You'd say, son, daughter, please come. I know you're failing. You're still my son or daughter. So that needs to be a revelation for us in an increasing way. May tells us in verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. It's interesting that Peter begins to speak about stones because his, his name, as we've covered, means small stone. So he's saying this, this, uh, this stone, the Lord um, Jesus, and, and how um, he was rejected, and that's the key word in the verse, is rejected. He was rejected. They're being rejected right now. They're being rejected in a significant way. He was rejected by, by men, but chosen by God and precious. So is his children. They're chosen. He's already told us that in the beginning of the book that we're elect. He's chosen us, and we're precious to him. And he's really getting to the point, you know, no servant is greater than his master. You know, Jesus, I mean, Peter was there in John 15, 20, when, when Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I mean, Peter heard that. And I know that that stuck with him for a long time. And, and even when, at the end of his life when he's going to be crucified upside down, I'm sure he's remembering those words. But, but the Lord Jesus was rejected and he was persecuted. But at the same time, he was chosen by God and he was precious. And so he's saying, you're in good company. Jesus was, Jesus was rejected just like you're being rejected. But God had a different assessment of his life just as he does a, a great, greater assessment than what the, other, the, the persecutors are saying about you. And then he says, we're stones in verse 5. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All these Jewish believers would know exactly what he's talking about here. Because he's, he's, he's talking about that they're living stones. He's talking about a spiritual house that he's building. Now, it really, the imagery probably in their minds would be like the temple that was still standing at this point, only like six years left to have this temple be standing there in Jerusalem. They were very familiar with that spiritual house there. They were familiar with the priesthood. And, and so he says, you are being built up as a spiritual stones, as a spiritual house, and you are, uh, it's crazy what he says, that you are a holy priesthood. That's crazy. You may have heard it said, the priesthood of all believers. There's no New Testament office of priest. F- try to find that. I mean, there's high priests, Jewish high priests, but that isn't a real positive portrait there of them in the New Testament. But there's, no, there's no New Testament office of priest except for the office that we get to enjoy as the priesthood of, of all believers. And so what did the priests do in the Old Testament? The priests represented the people to God and represented God to the people. It was a mediator. Now we have a high priest and we went through the book of Hebrews seeing that Jesus is our high priest. So he is our mediator, and we only have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We're told that in Timothy. So, but we're called to be priests in the sense that we are representing God to this world. And we're representing, in terms of intercession and prayer, the world to God and, and, and helping those two make that connection. 
But these Jewish believers would never think of themselves as priests. They, but God says, here you are. You are a royal, a holy priesthood. Not only are you a living stone being built up into a spiritual house, but you're a holy priesthood. Holy means to be set apart. You're a special set apart priesthood. That's who you really are. No matter what people are saying about you, they're telling you you're deceived, you're worthless. Your, 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 your life is a waste of time. But God says you're priests, and God says that you're a spiritual house. God says you're are, are living stones. And then notice he says you are ought to, you're offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now we're familiar, most of us, with Romans chapter 12, which says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so I firmly believe that Paul, when he wrote that in Romans chapter 12, he was thinking of the imagery of the burnt sacrifice. When the Jews would bring that sacrifice and it, would, it was an offering of consecration. It was, it was volitional. I mean, it was, you did it willingly. And it would be totally consumed. And he was picturing that saying, your whole life should be completely consumed in worship and consecration. But the tense that he uses there and here when he talks about spiritual sacrifices is talking about a one-time event. And I often refer to it as like, kind of like how we fulfill our marriage vows. You know, we were married once and we made those vows, but that doesn't mean we don't walk in those vows. So, so we presented our bodies a living sacrifice when we received Christ, but we need to walk in that commitment every single day. And that's what he says. Our lives have been offered up as spiritual sacrifices. Notice the word in verse 5, acceptable. See, that's what wasn't what they were experiencing. They, all they were experiencing from those that were persecuting them was that they were unacceptable. But he's saying, no, you are acceptable. And to the one that really matters, to God, through Jesus Christ. And he continues uh, in verse 5, uh, or in verse 6, he says, Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him, that means all those believers, will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. That's, you should read through it at your own, in your own time. It's, it's what's an amazing psalm, Psalm 118. But Jesus is precious to these believers. But to those who rejected him, he wasn't precious at all. He was reviled and hated, just like um, these believers were hated at this time. So, but the, the issue is, though, who's going to have the final say? Who, whose opinion really matters in the end? It, it, you know, it's been said, better to be a fool in the eyes of men than a, a fool in the eyes of God. And that's true. That the, when all this wraps up, when, all, when we stand before Christ... It's not going to matter what anyone's opinion of ourselves is, even our own. Supremely, it's going to be what he says about us on that day, and we're going to have to give an account for our lives there at the great white, or not the great white throne judgment, but the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ there. And, and he's saying that here Jesus was rejected, but God's assessment of him was something entirely different. The cornerstone was the main rock or stone or whatever that the whole entire building was measured off of 
And the picture is the foremen are there. They're waiting for the, the person that's building the, the, the building to send the, that cornerstone. And, and that will tell them the, how everything else should be built in that building. And so that cornerstone comes and they look at it and they throw it out and they reject it. And the problem with that is that now all the other stones and all, how everything else should be measured is going to be off. And so the, the, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Sometimes you see churches called cornerstone. That's what they're talking about. That, that their foundation is Jesus. And everything in their ministry, it, the, their heart's desire is that it would be measured off of his standard and his word. And so he's saying that he was rejected, just like you're being rejected. But he, he who falls upon that rock will be uh, blessed. And those that it lands on, though, will be crushed. You know? And so he says in verse 8, that and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So they stumbled at Christ. You know, Paul says in another place that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. And that word stumble is the word scandal on. It's a word from which we get our word scandal. It's an offense. It's a, something that you stumble over. And when you're talking to people and they just can't imagine that, that Jesus could be the only way, and he could, it's can't imagine that he would be the salvation that, or the Savior that God's provided, and it just stumbles them because it, it smites their pride. It works against their pride that they can't save themselves and that they have to come and humble themselves as a little child, as Jesus said, and come his way and humble themselves at the cross and admit their need for him, and it stumbles them. And so there, he's saying to be encouraged because... Does it matter if people are stumbled by what you represent? Ultimately, God's going to have the final say. Beautiful. Now, Peter really starts telling us things we would never believe about ourselves unless God had revealed them in verse 9 and, and following. Look with me there. He says, but you are a chosen generation. Isn't it great to be chosen? Remember when you're a kid and you're, they're picking teams? could be the last one and they're, they're fighting they're arguing the captains are arguing back and forth who's going to take you I've been there before made me want to get better at sports really badly <laughs> so I wouldn't have to be the one they're fighting over to not take but it's great to be chosen and we're we're a chosen generation and again as I mentioned when we looked at chapter one when we were looking at election that he only talks about us being elected and chosen in the context of believers he never associates election or any of those things in the context of evangelism. The emphasis then is always on the person believing. But once we get in the family, he comforts us and says, you, you, you accepted me, you believed, but I elected you and, I, and I've chosen you. It's supposed to be a great privilege for us to understand and to meditate upon. They were getting rejected. What they needed to hear was that they were chosen by God, by someone that matters. And he says, a royal priesthood. Again, we're priests, but not just any priests. We're priests of the king. I don't know that any place in the Old Testament, maybe it's there, but the priests are referred to as royal. And, and here we are, we're called the royal priesthood. We're, in a, we're, we're royalty. So in the context of rejection, maybe you're getting rejected right now because of your faith. You're, you are more than just what... You, they think you are, or more than what even you think you are. You are what God says. You're, you're a priest, and you're, you're royalty. And then he says, a holy nation. You've been set apart. You, you're, you're not supposed to be uh, identified with this world anymore. We're called to come out and be separate. 
to be distinct. It doesn't mean be weird and be, you know, someone that no one could ever relate to. It's talking about being like Christ. Well, sometimes people are afraid. Of, what's he going to turn me into? If I surrender my life completely to him, what's he going to make me like? He's going to make you like the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to make you like the character of Christ. Love and patience and goodness and patience, self-control and all these things that are wonderful for people to be around. Because really fruit is for, as I've said before, fruit is for the enjoyment of the person coming up to the, to the tree. It's not supremely for the tree's benefit that that fruit is, exists. It, it exists for other people to enjoy. So when, we're, when he's bearing fruit through our lives, it's for others to enjoy outside of ourselves. We do enjoy it, but he, he, his aim is for others to enjoy our lives. He says, his own special people. That's, I mean, how much more could he say about us? We are his special people. Sometimes people get mad when, or unbelievers get mad when we refer to ourselves as God's people. Oh, how arrogant. And you could say that you're God's people. Who is everybody else? Children of the devil. That's what Jesus said. You know, that, that, that our, your father is, is, is the devil. You know, I mean, we're children of wrath. That's what God says about us before we came to know him. And then he becomes our father. He wasn't our father before. He was our creator. But when we become a Christian, he becomes our father. And he wants us to call him daddy. So it's, it's beautiful. Then he says that the result is that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, the Christian life is the, called the great response. John said it this way, and we're going to get into 1 John here coming up. We love him because he first loved us. He's the initiator. We're the responder. We don't go around trying to initiate things and get him to respond to us. He's done everything for us, and our life should be given over as a response to his love and goodness, and our whole life should constitute worship to him and to bless his heart. So he says, that's what the whole purpose of this is for, for us, for our praise of him. And then he says, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are not darkness anymore. We are light in the Lord. And we're supposed to live in line with that. He's not called us to darkness anymore. And once we're in the light, we try to go back into the darkness. We're miserable. And I'm so thankful for that, that we will not be content in this world. We'll be miserable He's ruined us for the world. If we can go back into the world and live how we lived before and not have any problems with it, then, then we were never saved in the first place. Because he says, once I save you, I put my spirit inside of you. And yes, you can do things, your flesh can do things and so forth, and, and, and you'll, you'll, he'll let us do that in terms of our free will, but we'll be miserable. We'll be guilty and we'll be uh, wanting to... To, to, to have some solution to it uh, because he loves us so much. So very important for us to see that. And it, the light is marvelous. Verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So it's interesting. He's talking to Jewish believers here. They, they thought they were a people. They thought they very much were uh, valuable in and of themselves. And he says, you weren't a people. You think you're a people, but now you're a people. You are a people that I have ordained and I have set apart for my purposes. And now you're the people of God. You were the people who knew about God, but now you're the people of God. There's people that know about God all day long, everywhere you go. People know about him. Some of them don't even know about him, but many people know about God, but that doesn't mean that they know him personally. Once you get to know him personally, 
There's nothing else that satisfies. You can go out and try to do whatever you want to do in our flesh, but it'll never satisfy once you recognize that you're his son or you're his daughter. And he describes how it was before we came to know him who had not obtained mercy. We hadn't obtained. And don't think, and I know most of us won't think this, but don't think that obtained means that we earned that mercy. Because how he deals with us even before we came to know him and, and even when we come to know him is not based on us. It's based on who he is. He extends mercy because he's merciful, not because we deserved it or earned it or some, something like that. We obtained it means that we realized it, we appropriated it, we received it there. And now we have obtained that. And so because of that, we're supposed to live a different kind of life. And we're supposed to look like Christ. Our lives are supposed to look like his character. And when people see that, they recognize there's something different about that person. And then they ask questions and we're creating that, that thirst by the salt that's coming through our lives, our spiritual salt. We're creating that thirst and they're thirsting after God. And it's a beautiful expression of worship. Now he's going to get into some things which will best silence slander when it's offered against us, uh, continuing all the way through the rest of the chapter, which we won't get to. But let's begin in verse 11. He said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We can't miss that he starts with beloved. We don't usually use that a lot, but it means one who is loved. So he's saying, they, I love you. Peter has just come right out and say, I love you. And he says, I beg you. Notice he can't force them. I beg you. It has to be your decision. You have to do the right thing for the right reasons, and no one can force you to do that. God's given us a free will that even he won't override. So he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Remember at the beginning of the book, he said that you're scattered, you're among the dispersion, and you've been scattered like seed all over the, that area there because of persecution. They ended up where they ended up because of persecution in the first place. And now it's ramping up even more. And he says there, he goes, I beg you, you are passing through. This is not your home. We can get so comfortable here. And God says, this isn't your home. You're passing through. You're sojourners. You're pilgrims there. And he says, because of those things, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, I think it's good for us to see and to, to understand and be reminded of that, that the damage that sin does in warring against our souls, because our souls are our mind, will, and emotions. And those things, that our soul is going to be carried past this life with our spirit. And our body is going to become a new body, going to be resurrected someday. And it wars against the soul, fleshly lusts do. I wish he took out the sinful nature when we got saved. And he, he knows that it's best that he didn't do that. Because the virtue of the fact that we have it. I mean, he doesn't make mistakes. And so he, he let us have that sinful nature uh, even after we came to know Christ. And so he says, I want you to have victory because I'll give you the victory in this uh, life related to your behavior. And so we're supposed to abstain from fleshly lust. What's lust? Is it just sexual? Because usually we think of that in that context. Lust is having something or desiring something that doesn't belong to you. It could be anything. You could be having breakfast and someone has an ego right there and it doesn't belong to you and you want it. You didn't know you could lust after an ego, did you? But you can. If it doesn't belong to you, you can lust after it in your heart. It's something that doesn't belong to us. Well, I didn't know I'd be going to church thinking that, realizing I could lust after egos. That's something different. But yeah, that's what you get, unfortunately. But uh, 
But we can lust after many things that don't belong to us. And it does war against the soul. And that's, he knows that. So when we're going through difficulty, trials, and persecution, the last thing we need is to have our soul being attacked by our very, uh, uh, you know, lack of obedience. That's what he's saying. Even in persecution, guard your holiness. Even in difficulty, even in trials, guard your holiness. Go to God. We can't be obedient to God in the power of our own strength. You have to go. I have to go to him to get that power to, to live a life that's pleasing to him, moment by moment. Sometimes people will condemn themselves because of, of them falling short and, and sinning. Jesus said, you're going to face tribulation, you're going to face difficulty. And we're, he knows that we have a sinful nature, he knows that we need to confess our sin to him, but grace goes to him when we fail instead of running away from him. Don't run away from him when you fall short, when you sin. Get in the shower, so to speak. Don't try to get cleaned up before you get in the shower. No one does that. Get in the shower and let him clean you up. Go to him. He knows who he's getting. He knows all of our shortcomings and failures and sin and so forth. He has grace for all of it. Then he says in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, among those that don't know Christ. Conduct yourselves honorably. And he says, notice when they, when they uh, speak against you as evildoers. Of course, it's, it's wrong accusation. Let your good works be your defense, not your mouths. Don't we get defensive? I get so defensive when people are attacking Christianity when, around me. I get so defensive. And when they attack me, I get very defensive, of course, too. But we're supposed to let our good works uh, be our defense. Now, Jesus said, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we can't do that in our own strength. Let's be honest. <laughs> you have to do that with his strength. So in the moment, you don't say, time out, hold the persecution and slander for a moment. I'll be right back. And you go and you go and you get in your prayer closet and then you come back and say, okay, now I'm ready. We don't have that time. We just have to, in our heart, just say, even when we're talking, Lord, help. Give me power right now. Give me power to respond appropriately and, not, and turn the other cheek or, or to respond kindly or, or to bless them or in some way. Help me to do that. We don't have the power in our own strength to do it, but he will give us that power as we yield and as we ask for it in the moment. And if we do that, they'll observe it. He says that in the verse. They'll see it. And then they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. I don't know what that means at the end of verse 12. But it's probable that it's talking about when they meet God and God is giving, assessing their lives and maybe going over all the times he tried to reach them, he'll reference our good works and say, you had a good representation of what a changed life looked like as a result of my work in their lives. You don't have an excuse for not having a, a reference for a, a different kind of life. I don't know. But it, the point is, is that we're, he'll work all that out. All we have to do is focus on our good works being observable to them so that they can see it. So as I close, in our trials, we are going to have to get our focus on eternity and, and living a life that's pleasing to him, to live differently in this world. And, and if we don't, what price will we pay? I don't know. It's not good. God, God knows we're going to pay a heavy price if we don't live in the way that he's called us to live. And if we don't keep our focus on eternity and his assessment 
of our lives and who he says we are, he knows that we'll suffer as a result. He's not going to lose out on anything in himself, but as a loving father, he's going to be hurt and he's going to have, he has compassion on us. So there's a price to be paid by walking close if we don't walk closely with him and if we're not good examples of holiness, even in the context of trials and difficulty and persecution, he says, I will help you and it'll make a difference. It won't be wasted. Even if we think it's going to be wasted, it's not really doing anything. He sees it. And if this, the whole world misses out on what our obedience is, how it's lived out in this world, if the whole world misses out and only he sees it, it was well worth it. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for protecting us, Lord, by holiness and by your assessment of our lives and who you say we are. Help us all to believe who you say we are, Lord, and help us to live like it. Help us to live a life that's pleasing to you based on who you say we are and not who we think we are, Lord. Thank you for holiness. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the grace and power to live a different kind of life, to live a life like Jesus. Thank you so much, Father, that holiness is its own reward. Thank you that it protects us in the context of difficulty and in many other ways it protects us as well. We want to glorify you with our lives. We want our, 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 our light to shine so much, Lord, that those around us that don't know you will glorify you. And may we depend upon our increasing understanding of your grace and love as a response to what you've done for us. Lord, help us live pleasing to you. We thank you we get to study this together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand again.